podcast people. Welcome to Searching with JTG. That's me, Jason Tyler Grace, with three names. Kind of pretentious, maybe not, I don't know. I am super excited to share this conversation with Claudia de Saab. Claudia is a Italian tattooer who lives in London, and we had a very endearing conversation. She is an incredibly creative person. She's funny and smart and well-spoken in English, which is her second language. And uh, I was lucky enough to see an amazing book that she made when I was living in Costa Rica. And I was blown away by this uh, piece of art that she made because she took the idea of a book and made it into something completely different. It's like an accordion. And I could just see the level of care and dedication and commitment that it took and it made sense because I'd seen her tattoos and she has this really elegant, fine style. And uh, man, I was so excited to talk to her and I could not have expected a more candid conversation. Uh, I really appreciated her honesty and her openness and her bravery and the way that she truly expressed herself. And uh Man, I couldn't I couldn't be more excited about it. It goes in a lot of different directions. Psychedelics, the meaning of the word bohemian, uh man, across the board. Uh when I was thinking of people to interview, she was one of the first people that came to my mind. I have been impressed with her all along the way. And she does quite different work than I do, and I'm always interested in what makes somebody tick, which is what this whole goddamn podcast is about. So I hope that you enjoy it. Uh, I guess it's important for people to follow it or subscribe to the podcast if you're into it, and maybe leave positive reviews. I'm sure it doesn't hurt. Uh, That's it. The sun is out here in Oregon. That's fucking cool, because I missed it. I just got back from a week of tattooing in Denver, and it was one of the best guest spots I ever had. And now, to this. I get to share the third episode, and you get to listen to it. And I appreciate it, because I know that there are a shit ton of podcasts out there. And maybe you're taking the time to check this one out. And if you are, thank you. And I think you'll really enjoy this conversation with Claudia. Claudia de Saab. So I'll just uh, welcome Claudia de Saab to Searching with JTG, and uh, she's an Italian tattoo artist living in the United Kingdom in London with her husband, Utaro, and it's my pleasure to sit and talk with her. Thank you for being our guest. Thank you for inviting me to do this. It's really, yeah, exciting. Awesome. I'm a bit nervous. Me too. I, I'm still nervous every time I do it. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay, good. Yeah. Okay, it's good to know that I'm not the only one. Great. So uh, can you tell us a bit about who you are? Like, I know you are from Italy. Where are you from in Italy? I'm from a town, well, it's a small city called Padova, which is in the north uh, east, sort of like, I don't know, half an hour away from Venice. 
Um, it's a really cool city. Um, it's, it's got nice university and has a bit of a crazy history. Um, so yeah, I, I like it a lot. I, always, I never thought I was gonna leave it, um, but I did, <laughs> so. <laughs> well, I didn't realize you were from the North. My ex-wife, uh, Julia, she's from Bassano de Grappa. Yeah, Bassano yeah. is a super cool place. Yeah, and that was just about 30 minutes outside of Venice as well. Mm -hmm. God, yeah, very beautiful. close. So beautiful. Yeah. yeah. And uh, how long did you live in Italy? Um, so I lived in Italy until I was 25. And then I moved to London. Um, and I've been here since. So it's been 15, 15 years going 16. Wow. Yeah. And did you start tattooing in Italy? Yeah, I started, I had a really, really shitty apprenticeship um, in Vicenza, uh, which is not, you know, it's, it's a little bit closer to Bassano. Um, and then I moved and, and then um, I started getting my sleeves uh, done here in London by Ian Flowers at Into You. And uh, he introduced me to Dante from uh, Free Street. And I got to do, well, maybe like six weeks, like summer trial. Um, at the time, I wasn't tattooing in a tattoo shop. I was already like left the shitty shop and I was tattooing from my house. Um, and I was doing terrible tattoos. Um, but then, yeah, so I did those six months um in um in free street and at ian's shop and then um i moved about six months later to london um and in in the meantime i did about four or five months in a tattoo shop in another city um where this it's kind of like older generation it's probably been tattooing for like more than 30 years now um andy was his name and he was super fan of um Philip Lou. So I think because I was also a lot into Japanese tattooing, it's so in me, like, you know, I was the only person around that he had to speak about Japanese tattooing and to kind of like share that. So he kind of like, you know, he felt like he could trust me enough to go and do all of the little things that he didn't want to do anymore. Because at that stage, he had already the shop for like 15 years and it was kind of like, the shop of the city, you know, where everybody was going. So I just went and I started doing like all of the stuff that he didn't want to do, like kanjis and stars and tribals lower back and Leo roses and all of that stuff. So it was perfect um, four or five months of, you know, getting the technique down and just get a little bit more comfortable with tattooing. And then I moved to London and I started working at Free Street at Ian Flowers to shop outside London. Um, yeah, and then I didn't go back. And I always said, like, I stay another two years, I stay another two years every time. And it's been 16 years of being here. So, <laughs> cool. Those, those early experiences of having to tattoo like lower, uh, tribal on lower backs and having to do all that small stuff is so helpful. It's crazy. If you ask me to do a star now, I don't think I could do it. They're so hard. Yeah. Some of that stuff is so difficult. So hard. 
All the little, uh, the little, very simple stuff is so hard because we can't hide it with anything. You can't shade off of those lines and. Yeah. Yeah, I, I didn't realize that you worked at Fifth Street. I've been to that shop once and it was a pretty, I mean, there's a fascinating history at Fifth Street. Yeah, I was um, there when Thomas Hooper was there. Um, who else was there at the time? Cham and I, and then Piotrek. And then um, who else was there at the time? Uh, Aaron, like some, you know, local English, really good. Like when I moved here, I think you could count the good shops in probably two hands. Like, you know, it would be seven good shops. And now it's like a hundred good shops in London. So it has changed a lot. The city has changed a lot. The scene of tattooing has changed a lot. So, yeah, I was the, like me and Chan were the only, and Piotrick were free foreigners and everybody else is with English. And now you walk in any tattoo shop and it's mostly foreigners. And, you know, here in London at least, um, yeah. it's been like, it's changed a lot. And then, yeah, Valerie and Stuart joined after as well. And I worked a little bit while they were there. And then I left and I started my own journey and I worked in many other shops in London. Yeah. Will, will all that be changing now with all the foreigners working there because of Brexit? Um, I think that the people that are there, most of them, the, you know, it's been quite easy in the terms of um, getting permission to stay. Um, if you've been here for more than I think two years is you pretty much granted to stay and not having to leave. Mm -hmm. So the people that are here already, they might stay. Uh, the people that wanted to move here, they will have a much harder time, but I don't know what's going to be left. <laughs> so probably it might not even be worth coming anymore. I don't know. It's, it's, I think it's just the beginning of this Brexit, this, you know, divorce and we don't know how it's going to look like we don't know exactly how much it's going to change things you know yeah man the timing could not have been worse with COVID oh and that at the same time huh? uh, it's crazy yeah and then how soon how soon before COVID did you guys open up Red Point um at that point we were um one and a half years in so it was just really just kind of started to really pick up and um, we're getting like good exposure and a good amount of guests coming through and returning customers. Um, yeah, it, just, it was just about to start to get really good and then COVID came. So yeah. yeah, yeah, just like, you know, just full on sailing motion, like, you know, just like very titan Titanic like on the top of the boat, you're like, fuck yeah, just like, we're taking over. And then it's like COVID, everybody shut down. And it just kind of felt a little bit depressed in the first couple of months to kind of, you know, just, just not being able to really get into everything. And, you know, it just felt like... Like, there were any kind of rhythm at all like yeah if it if it was only hard for a couple months i'd be really impressed this this whole year has just been such a challenge in terms of trying to maintain any yeah. kind of consistency or fucking motivation how yeah. have how have you dealt with covid and and 
like having your family and, and the shop and still being so creative? So the good thing is that um, the UK government has been really, really helpful. So we did get a lot of economical support, both as self-employed and as shop owners. Um, we have only one employee, our manager, and the government is paying all of his wages, so he hasn't lost his job. Um, so, you know, it's very good to have that option, like to have been in a place where we didn't have to, we didn't have to have that stress, the economical stress. And the fact, you know, I, I paid my taxes all the time as I should. So the, the help that I got back from the government, of course, is not, you know, as much as I would have made by working, but it was comfortable enough to have everything paid for all my bills. And so that has been good. Um, and then, you know, the psychological aspect, I think this is the third lockdown that we have had so far. So the first lockdown, it was crazy. Um, you know, we were, I think everybody was in a bit of a survival mode, right? We didn't know what it was and how, you know, lethal it was as a virus. And then my mom had um, a domestic uh incident like she fell and um, she broke her ribs and she had internal bleeding she had to be taken to the hospital uh, without my my dad could not access so she was by herself and uh, they have to you know open up and um, they took the spleen off her and then she was hospitalized for another 10 days and kind of isolated because she developed like water in her lungs so she had like the, the breathing apparatus on her and so it was crazy because i couldn't go back home Ugh. i couldn't go see her because yeah, italy and, was fucked yeah and you know the north italy like padova where i'm from is basically the first place where covid hit so everything in there was like madness, right? And uh, so I just couldn't, that was very scary. It was very scary to not know if I was going to see my mom again. Yeah. Um, so that was really radical. And then the second one, my son had surgery. <laughs> he just like every, every single lockdown has been hospitals or like, bad you know bad timing but um and then this last one uh i just i think i ran out of steam and uh i just felt like it wasn't fucking gonna end anymore you know and just um and i think for us because we can see most people everywhere else are either working or there's some sort of like normal life um it just it just feels like a kick in the nuts every day um, yeah. here we're still like they're gonna tell us on Monday you know some sort of timeline of when things are gonna open back up and but now I kind of got used to it you know it's just kind of like it's been I got into into the all right let's do something out of this and I managed to kind of come out a little bit of a funk that I was in um, about a month ago um, but you, you know it was January London, gray, 
rain, <laughs> lockdown. And it was just like in a normal, you know, any old normal year, you'd be hating London anyways. You try to <laughs> escape January and February in London are horrible. Like it's just never ending misery. <laughs> you know, it's pretty, it's pretty hard. Um, and with COVID on top of them, I was just like, oh, just again, I See, don't know. I, I, I remember I came to, I was in London visiting you guys right as COVID was starting. I ended up having to leave yeah. within a week or two afterwards. But I, I took the train from Amsterdam to London. Or uh, yeah, from Amsterdam to London. And I pa and it, I passed through some small town and outside the window was the most miserable thing I'd ever seen. I just split up with my wife. It was fucking just so gray <laughs> and desolate and industrial. I was like, oh, oh. my God. Yeah. Wow. You do. How long were you in London for when you came over? Well, not oh, long, just right? like yeah, I think just a week or so. And it was right when was everything it February? was February. It was February, um, just March. March. Yeah. Yeah, just right before everything started to oh. shut down day by day by day, and yeah. I really didn't want to to go back. But that was the first time I really got to experience London, and what a beautiful city! So much style. And... London is incredible. When you know, when it doesn't rain uh, <laughs> and you get, I mean, it's not, to be honest, it doesn't feel, maybe, you know, that area of uh, Italy where I'm from is very foggy and it gets very humid and the winters are long and dark and cold. So for me, it doesn't feel that bad over here. Um, it just, the summers are cooler, which I'm super happy with because I hate the heat. Um, and when it's, like sunny the sky in London is just I think only San Francisco is just as beautiful like probably they are like up there you know just blue with perfect white uh clouds and you have like this orange from the bricks of these Victorian houses just for me it's like sometimes I'm still like oh my god this is so beautiful I just love it so much yeah I just moved to Portland and it's all rainy like I've seen the sun maybe <laughs> six times in the past two months and from oh no Costa Rica to this is a mind fuck <laughs> yeah I don't know you could have done like a, a little bit in between I, to kind of get yourself a little bit warmed up to yeah I, have a crazy I, weather I say that to myself every day but <laughs> so you you were working in Italy on your own for a while right you were or... for about like uh like a year maybe okay. something like that doing one to two a month <laughs> <laughs> terrible yeah and then and then when you started to go get tattooed by ian and you were getting sleeves done yeah so yeah. really soaking up information through that were you asking him yeah, a lot of questions and yeah he he was really really helpful um uh, he taught me how to do proper needles and he just gave me stuff you know to like good stuff before i was doing my own needles using elastic bands wait you were <laughs> exactly i was <laughs> waiting for it yeah no. yeah just rubber bands yeah Holy and shit. um so you can imagine how bad those tattoos were like the lines now they're probably if i use like a five liners now they look like a 14 open i guess or something like that it's just terrible wow. uh, so yeah that helped me a lot what year my was machines. This? this was like 2000 
four. Hmm? Yeah, 2004. Okay. Yeah. Um, so yeah, he gave me good machines to try, good uh, colors. It just gave me basically all the startup to just start tattooing again, because what I was doing, it was not tattooing. I was yeah. scratching of like <laughs> rubber bands. Proper scratching, you know, <laughs> terrible. Amazing. <laughs> and then had you been drawing since you were a kid? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That was my happy place. Definitely. Well, happy, but I, I was so self um, critical. Like since I was at kindergarten, like I remember being four years old and just being so frustrated because the painting didn't look good enough. So, wow. yeah terrible <laughs> always a perfectionist yeah but I wasn't you know um yeah I just think I could see that myself wasn't as good as I wanted it to be so um I, I didn't have like I'm not naturally good at drawing I'm not one of those people uh, when I went to art school um my teacher, my drawing teacher, th the first year, she was like, are you sure this is the right school for you? Because I don't see it. <laughs> so it was, um, and you know, I had like the lowest score in the in the class. And, and then I was, but I'm super stubborn. So that's my, you know, my good quality, just being stubborn and not shying, shy away from hard work. So yeah, and at the last year I was with the top score and she was like, "Wow, you really, I was, I was really wrong about you. Like, she was like, wow, what a change, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm now naturally talented. So. Well, that says a lot, right? Like uh, how important tenacity and resilience is when we're faced with difficulties or we, you know, if you have a hard time drawing, but you just won't give up and you look at it and see what you want to make better and overcome the lack of skill with uh, determination. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, that's the, that's, that's a good quality to have just being resilient and just being stubborn and stubborn in the sense of not wanting to be right. Like you have to take criticisms, uh, but you just have to, you know, keep going at it. You can't, you can't take, yeah, you just, I don't know. I don't think I've never done anything worth doing that was easy. Like anything that is, you know, like, and, and I don't know, there's, um, I don't see that in a lot of people, I think, especially maybe younger generations. I think I'm starting to see a big gap, you know, like, now I'm 40 and until now I always felt sort of like being in touch with younger generations or like still having that sort of mindset. But I think now I'm, I'm like, no, we are totally different places. It, um, different, you know, you can tell like I was born in Italy in the 80s when like heroin was like the top fucking thing, you know, it's just a, a different different upbringing and 
and I, I think is really, really showing, which does, it doesn't, you know, sometimes I'm like, wow, like all of these TikTokers or whatever, millionaires, like, I'm like, you're a fucking genius. Like, <laughs> you are a billionaire by doing stupid shit. I'm like, and I'm here working my ass off, right. you know, and I'm like, it's like, what, why am I not getting <laughs> <laughs> you know hard work it doesn't have to be always suffering and maybe people should do what they're good at but if you're not good at anything and you're not willing to put your heart and soul and sweat and tears into something what are you gonna get at the end of the day you know yeah I mean I think a lot of the people that are making that money uh, so much of it is so I mean, it, it's fun and they're, they're making really entertaining things. And I guess there's value in entertainment, but I mean, you know, having, getting paid millions of dollars from YouTube or, or TikTok, I don't necessarily think that makes for a decent person or a good, person, you know, no, I know. So but young that they're probably yeah, just- yeah, but when I was that age, I was crying in a corner and thinking I was the biggest shit in the planet that's the difference you know it's yeah. like and they're so confident like you know well, i'm just gonna do this it's gonna be sick and people will love it i'm gonna make a ton of money on it and just completely different just anything it's so yeah. crazy for me well there's got to be a lack of there was i guess growing up without that distraction without that constant feedback the constant feedback of producing something, instantly sharing it and getting a reaction. And whether that reaction is just numbers of likes or financially, mm-hmm. and then that has that has to do something to our personality. And especially, I mean, I feel it as a 42 year old, but I know a 20 year old that has been doing it for fucking five or six years, that uh, the ability to be introspective and look at themselves and maybe see where they're short or where they could be better apart from that uh, feedback loop of what it means yeah. to be a decent person or to overcome adversity or, you know, and I'm sure that a lot of them struggle as well. But I think that yeah. that you sitting there back in the day, thinking about what you could do better, maybe they're successful in one way, but maybe not so much in that way that has any moment of peace or uh, yeah, uh, without a restlessness of the spirit of trying to find some uh, confirmation of how good they are. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's, um, it's kind of like, I think there's a difference in the parenting style that they had and that I had as well, you know? And that I think really shaped, shapes one person. So um, I don't know if I did what these kids are doing on TikTok, my mom would be giving me shit for days. She'll be like, what the fuck are you doing with your life? Like, I mean, she already like, you know, it took her a few years to accept that, you know, I do tattoos for a living. So, uh, imagine if I was a TikToker, she, she would have like, <laughs> I don't know, like, I don't know what she would have done. Probably had like my phone or something, taken that <laughs> away from me. I, I could see something like that for sure. Did they have a hard time when you decided you wanted a tattoo? Oh, yeah. Um, my dad didn't speak to me for six months. Damn. Uh, 
Yeah, I was kind of, you know, I did, um, I finished um, both high school and then, you know, I don't know what's the correspondence because, you know, in Italy it's all different um, school system, but I got my degree as well and it was like everything summa cum laude, like top, you know, top class all the time. And, um, but, you know, I just finished. I didn't know, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I wasn't really happy. I didn't, I, you know, was 22 at the time. The thought of being locked in an office in a museum wasn't really, no, it was misery for me. So um, when I decided I was gonna take on this offer that I got given to be an apprentice, although it was shit, um, it kind of felt like this is this is it. I'm gonna do this and and I'm gonna move out. And I told that to my parents, and they were like, "What the fuck is wrong with you?" Like they they were like, "Did something break in your head? Like what happened?" Like <laughs> they just couldn't quite process it. And and it took a long time. Um, and they were was, happy for me. This was after you graduated, so you did graduate art school. Yeah. Yeah, graduated art school and then to university for three years. And um, so I was doing graffiti at the time and I was, you know, we were doing commission work. So I was getting some money for that. I was doing waitressing uh, two, three times a week. So I had my incomes, um, you know, but I think for my parents, it took a while to understand that they were not going to see the steady recognized you know I don't know um profession from me and um then you know came to London and my mom was like oh you're making you know enough money to live in London so she started to understand and it took them some time but um yeah now they're okay with it. Now they, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's I mean, just, a parent would have to. Just what it is. Yeah, it's just <laughs> what it is. A parent would have to be point. a knucklehead, like a real asshole to, you know, watch their kid become successful and still resent what they do because they don't like it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, what was your transition like from being? So, I guess it, during art school, you were you painting? Yeah, it was. Um, um, we were doing. Painting, well, we were doing drawing and then the last few years it was painting, but it was never oil painting, which is a bummer. And uh, sculpture and then uh, um, architecture studies. Oh, wow. So, uh, yeah, I loved, like, art school for me was the sickest shit ever. I loved it. <laughs> it was so good. I was I'm happy to be a nerd. I was super nerdy about any subject matter. We were doing philosophy chemistry, um, literature. It was just awesome. I really enjoy school. Yeah, Super sounds, nerdy. <laughs> it sounds so good. <laughs> so it was a good school. Back, um, was there a transition between being a trained artist and I would assume that you were studying like the meaning of art, the significance of art, the history, um, and the ideas behind it. And then transferring between that and then tattooing, which is more of a craft. What's been your experience of the difference between art and craft? Mm, I, I ask, it's the question that I'm still asking myself, you know? 
um, it's like sometimes um, I see forms of um, craftsmanship as art. You know, it's just not, and the art, you know, that is in the big galleries or like, you know, that kind of like post-modernist art that to me, I look at it, I'm like, it's a concept, it's not art, you know? So it's kind of like, what, what's your vision in art in general? Like to me, certain installations, unless they come with a manual to know where the idea comes from, it means nothing, you know, but don't, they don't make me feel anything. There's no pleasure on observing. So, so in that sense, I'm kind of like, wow, do I really care about art? You know, it's like, is that like, I just think I'm born in the wrong century. I think, you know, if I was born during the Victorian days, probably, you know, I would have feel way more uh, in tune with the art of the time or something, but all of, you know, the, the idea that art has to be, that of, of the art that it is today, I don't feel quite in line with it. And, but then at the same time, if you were a postmodernist, you'd be like, ah, oh, you know, tattooing is, is an installation, not installation, is like performance art almost, right? It could be like, it, it has, you know, and it, it lasts as long as that person is alive. So it could be, you know, it, whatever you look at it, to me, tattooing is always art. It's just your vision of art and what it means to you changes. But to me, tattooing is art. Um, it's art that has, you know, every time I thought that it has some sort of, um, not boundaries, but, um, what can I say? Like, you know, you had to play by certain rules to do it well. Then I see something, I'm like, uh, no, you actually don't. You know, it's not, you don't have to have always black lines, black shading. You know, it's, it's just that it's, it's evolving. Like, it's just, um, it's an evolving um, idea overall and the looks and it just, the more it's it's constantly evolving. So it's like art. It is art because it's evolving with the decades, you know, it's just a very new. That's yeah. that's what I think it is. Maybe like you would ident do you enjoy going to the Tate Modern or is that do you not like that kind of art modern art? I'm a Tate Britain girl. <laughs> so that would be more more classical. Yeah. 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 I do enjoy Tate Modern, some stuff I do enjoy, yeah. Um, but I kind of like more, um, I don't know if you know Grayson Perry, mm -mm. do you know him? He's an English artist and um, he does ceramics, but also, or, you know, other things. It's just, um, uh, it's quite a well-rounded artist, but he's mostly um, a potter artist. Um, and um, he has, uh, to me, that's, that's, that's the best of the modern, modern mix with um, actual skills. I, I like to see the, the, 
the, the the skills that comes through the the actual there's there's something about how somebody paints and how somebody molds like you know just um <clears throat> a, a sculpture or like that tactile, tactile impression of the artist into a piece of work that to me gives me like a lot like that's uh that's where my that the, the feeling it's a hundred times more enhanced. Um, have you been to Paris? Mm-hmm. Do you know uh, Moreau, the painter? Yeah. Jacques Moreau? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have you ever been to his house? No. To the museum, Gustave mm-hmm. Moreau Museum? It's insane. Like every time we go to Paris, when there was the convention, I was always like taking people there because to me it's the most beautiful place uh, on the planet there's not his best work i think is in um musee d'orsay and um some other gallery like big museum in paris but his house it's packed with stacks of like his uh study uh, painting studies for like bigger painting and sketches and research sketches and reference sketches and it's just the sketches to me there are I just love it it's for me it's kind of like seeing what's inside the person that made it like it's just like looking into their minds and um it just tells more of a story to me than all of you know more kind of like modern art like just um um, I don't know, that feels almost too sterile to me, you know, it's like so abstract, right? Like, so it's a concept, it's so processed, uh, so um, distilled that kind of loses something. So I do prefer seeing the actual gesture in the piece of art, whatever right. it is, you know? <clears throat> and maybe somebody's understanding of the medium and their... Um they're learning to perfect their technique and their approach and how to manipulate the medium and make it do what they will. Yeah. Which I can see in your tattoos. You know, your tattoos are very elaborate and clean and beautifully shaded and very uh, technically sound and really beautiful. So I can see that that uh, transition between those two things, you know, your preference Mm. for, for, art to look at on your tattoos yeah if i had to i prefer looking at architecture than if we if i have to look at something that doesn't have a physical you know hands-on sort of approach i'd rather look at architecture Mm. than looking at art that is super conceptual yeah where do you pull inspiration from for your creative endeavors um well there's always you know mostly okay so i'm a gemini right (laughs) and i have two souls inside me and one really really loves 1800 japanese art and the other one really really loves 1800 european art Mm. and i try to put them together sometimes the Japanese one is a little bit stronger. Some other times the European one is a little bit stronger. So it's kind of like whatever, whichever of the two has got the loudest voice at the moment. Ah, uh, that's kinda great. Like how it comes through. 
That's such a great yeah. answer to the juxtaposition of uh, two different places during the 1800s. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, that's kind of my favorite century, <laughs> like my, where I get most of, um, I think it's, you know, it's before everything changed drastically. It's when um, the first kind of bohemians like starting to appear as far as like artists goes and um maybe yeah. you would know this from being from being over there so i went to prague and i found out mm -hmm. that they were called bohemians and I'd, and i know that like uh muka i guess was during that that period of bohemians but i know in the states we talk about bohemians like almost kind of like hippies like 50s beatniks would have been bohemians and uh, do you have any idea how that came about that bohemian became a it's like bohemian oh, okay i'm a little bit rusty because it comes from french uh it's a french word from bohem which probably i don't know i don't remember where it comes from but um it's kind of it was these little pockets of artists that they started to talk within themselves about trends and there was more like a, a concept and a philosophy behind what they were doing while you know you would have the sporadic like you know michelangelo or da vinci like they were individuals by themselves right that they had they were so great in what they were doing that they had their own philosophy but they were not really they were quite they were quite you know fighting and competing with each other because you know who got the job from the pope is the one that brings home the cash so they hated was, each other <laughs> exactly they hated each other it was like trying to up each other up so much right but there wasn't like that spirit like the renaissance and all of this before they were not um there wasn't they were kind of like, you know, the artists who come from the Bottega, like, you know, they would learn under somebody that was still kind of craftsmanship, really, you know, so there was kind of that aspect to it. And then with the 1800, there was all of this mix of um, poetry and um, actors and, and uh painters and sculptors and they were getting together and getting wasted and you know just coming up with and they were poor like we're not they were not trained artists they were like people that just loved art so much and that was their vocation that's what they wanted to do and um and that's what I like about it. I think that they were kind of like the graffiti writers of the 1800s. They were <laughs> they had different visions of art, and but everything was coming from. Um, um, I, I see it as like it had a soul, you know, like the, the, what the what they were trying to do. It was just pushing these ideas and idealisms and of different beauty and different um, subject matter that the people at the time did not appreciate. So like my favorite group of all times is the, uh, the brotherhood of the pre-Raphaelites mm -hmm. and there's a sisterhood as well. And uh, that's, you know, where 
for me it's like there was like these four or five people and they were poets and um there's that romanticism in it you know it's just kind of like that's when in philosophy you would have um these um trends of um of people feeling so small um when facing nature and it was kind of like it's very dark you know what I mean just like very you know like uh, that's at the times of uh, Mary Shelley's and Frankenstein and all of that kind of um, just just um, facing the change of society because it was getting to the industrial um, uh, revolution and uh, so everything was changing there was like this darkness and poverty and you know the um, all of London was like Jack the Ripper and like all of that kind of dark, like when really the nasty side and of human, they were being documented and represented and talked about and becoming, everybody was aware of it. You know, there was like the, the middle classes were born. So people were kind of coming out of poverty a little bit and they were not, it was, I think it's just a beautiful time where things really started to change and they really started like, you know, put down the foundation for the society that we have right now. And mm. back then they already saw the problems rising that we have now, the disparity of um, social classes, especially here in England, the classes are God, like you really feel the difference. In Italy, everybody's sort of the same. Yeah, and you have some rich people, and does, you know, and does London have racism in the way that the states does, or is it more classism? No, I think it's more classism. Yeah. Um, London, I don't see. Of course, racists are everywhere. You know, there's no way around it. But as an outsider, you know, coming from a place that I think is way more racist. <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, just because Italy is not was never really exposed to have like multiple races coexisting and London does and there's a form of um leave and let leave sort of thing going you know just um um yeah but I don't know I don't see a I'm sure there is like you know I do have friends that are of color and we do say like hey we we experience racism um so i believe there is but i don't think it's as bad as the states um there's um uh, just because we have maybe more centuries like more centuries of coexisting you know like muslims like even when there was the attacks here in london people didn't go crazy you know and and it's not very in, in the English nature of losing their shit as much as I hear things happening in America, you know, just people shouting at each other because they're not wearing a mask. And, you know, here it's not like that. The English person be like, you know, just like kind of looking a little bit frazzled and uh, just kind of like talk shit when they get home about it, but they wouldn't make a scene. So um, I think it's the different, different attitude, but the classism is, is real you know um the english rich people are really really rich you know it's just kind of like 
you know, I, I know we make a good living, but it's nothing to compare compared to what a well-off English person makes. And I see that just, we're trying to buy a house and I'm, uh, today uh, we had to walk one hour today with Itaro and I, I was like too angry. I was like, man, like we can't afford to have a decent house. How crazy is that? It's like how, who's buying this million and a half houses all around us? Who the fuck's got that money? I'm like, what is this? What am I missing? It's so, but then, you know, there's on the other side, there's council estates where basically you can touch the ceiling because the houses are so squashed in and terrible. And there's plenty of it. Like there's everywhere, you know, like I used to work um, in this road, Cali Road, um, called Cali Road, Caledonian Road, and which is just off King's Cross. And one side at the back, like on one side would be two millions worth of houses, right? Like beautiful townhouses, uh, crazy cars packed outside, everywhere, just like that beautiful neighborhood. And on the other side of the street, there would be the most dangerous council block where police cars, they have to go in in like few numbers because if they go in by themselves, they don't come out basically. And it's, for me, it always blow my mind. We'll have kids robbing, stealing, killing each other on the doorsteps. And on the other side, there will be like this lifestyle that we don't even dream about. You know, it's so yeah. different. Yeah, it's crazy. You're seeing that a lot in the States now. And uh, like here in Oregon, there's just tons of people living in tents. There's you drive on the highway and there's people camping on the side of the highway. This is in California. This is in Oregon. And yeah. in San Francisco, I started to think it's like real. Cause you have these people living in million plus apartments, like a million dollars for a studio apartment. And outside there's human shit all over the streets and people struggling. And there's, there's already a separation that builds up between the people that are living in the houses or walking by the people on the streets and viewing them as completely and totally different than than them. I mean, I I I do it, and I'm a empathetic person. And yeah, you have to call yourself back to be able to be like, fuck, we're we're all the same, you know. And it's, some people have fallen on really hard times, and it's such a it's a story as old as time. This uh, yeah struggle between the definitely, haves and but the you know, in here we don't have tent cities as much as you guys have we still have you know a government like most of europe the one through socialism in the shape on the other and so we do have a good essential how do you call it um like a safety a, net yeah just like uh, assistance right mm -hmm. like so they, there's like halfway houses and loads of um there's a lot more help yeah. that i see in the states and people it's just mm, there's more resources i think yeah uh for people to you know the council houses are very very common here and it's not you get you know you're on the doll so you do get some money which is almost like minimum wage uh from what i get to understand so there is a way 
before falling really hard, you can be caught a few times over here, I think, well, which is good. awesome. It's yeah. really great. Yeah. I, I think a lot about how the United States is like a young, strong, rich teenager, because we're so much younger than Europe and we're so much younger than pretty much, you know, all the other civilizations. Yeah. But we're, we have had so much power and wealth that we're just really cocky in a lot of ways. But there's mm. so much that we can learn from these, you know, other countries that have been around for centuries longer than us. Mm. Yeah, but, you know, I see... I see America as, I don't know, there's a different attitude when I come to America. And over here and Europe in general, some places more than others, they're like, if you want to do something, people try to tear you down. Um, because nobody really wants anyone to succeed more than they do. There's, and in America, I see people pushing each other up, you know, like there's a lot more sense of, um, hey, if it's good for you, it's good for me, man. That's awesome. Yeah. Go get it, you know? Yeah. And I love that about America. I love that attitude and just being even in table with like, you know, tattooers and people will be like, hey, I want to do a podcast. And everybody will be like, fuck yeah, man. Like, just do it like that's awesome and then people will help each other they there's a more sense of i don't know that that if one does good everybody can do it and everybody is good for everyone and i don't see that in europe there's still a lot of um old structures you know and when somebody is in power doesn't want anybody to get us piece of it nobody like or every or it has to be controlled in a sense um and this is in every single field it's not just the tattooing you know it, um, that's why i never became an architect because i didn't want to work for two years for free for somebody and then just be left in the street with nothing because i'm not part of you know i'm not from a family of architects and there's this like old settled um, walls and barriers that are in place that have been placed for a long time. Uh, they are really, really hard to knock down and yeah. push through. So, and I don't see that in America as much. The, the support and the general attitude is really refreshing. And that's probably what I love the most of America. Yeah, you know, after coming back here at after being in Costa Rica for five years and getting to watch what the States was going through. And um, it was tumultuous here. And I didn't know that I was ever going to go back to live in the States. I, mm. But while I was there, I kind of I, I fell in love with the States again. And when the whole thing happened with George Floyd and there were protests everywhere, and it was a really trying time. And I was down there and I felt so separate and I wanted to come and I realized that there's no escaping the fact that the that I was born here and that I have a connection that I will always have to this country. And being back here now, after living in, uh, I guess it's a third world country, but in a, you know, on the, in a beautiful, beautiful place, but I feel like I'm in the land of opportunity and I can yeah. do 
and that's a really beautiful thing about the U.S. for sure. Yeah. And then it also made me think. I guess Morrissey was spot on. You hate it when I, I hate it when my friends become successful. Is kind of the <laughs> right? Then Morrissey has that song. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of like the the anthem of the. It's perfect. The, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, it's... maybe we we'll get back a little bit to some tattoo stuff. I I know that you. I got to see the accordion book that you made. Mm-hmm. Man, what a big project that was. Can you tell me about the process of making that? Well, so, you know, when I, so how many times I've been to Japan? Five or six times. And a few, I think mostly without Yutaro, I went there. So um, I started going to Japan a bunch of times and um, I started collecting these little books um, where you go to the temple and you get like a, it's like a stamp and a signature from one of the monks um, and uh, they write the date um, and the name of the temple and basically people in Japan they do these um, these visits to the temple and they just love to collect the, the stamp as like I've been there right um, and they're just beautiful. It's beautiful calligraphy and the, um, the stamp that they use are sick. They're beautiful. Like it's either um, coming from like Shinto, um, you know, just really simplified designs. They're just beautiful. So I kind of got into this little accordion booklet and, and I love that. So when I started about thinking, thinking about doing a book, um, I didn't want to do a normal book because everybody makes it. Like everybody can make a book, right? And I just wanted to have something. And that's what I'm trying to do, whether I'm doing prints or like scarves or um, books or, you know, anything else that I'm doing to have it so people would enjoy it as an object. Like it just like have something that whether it's like the, the, the something different to the touch or like visually that people can just have it there just because it's beautiful. I mean, they'll have to use it because all the tattoo books is something that you use the, as a reference. It has a use or like as inspiration, it has a purpose, right? And I just wanted to do something that people could just open because it looks fucking sweet. Mm-hmm. And it's nice. And that was my my uh, idea about like how to make something different and how to kind of stand out from the gazillion books that are being made all the time. Um, so I just kind of like had this idea and then this little booklet thing that I love because of the pages are amazing. There's always like silk on the front with like embossed um, um kanjis or something so I thought like I just want to do chrysanthemums because that's my favorite flower since I was a kid and my mom thought I was weird because that's the flower of dead people in Italy so when she was like why do you like chrysanthemums they're like for, for, like the graveyard like can you know pick something different like roses <laughs> I'm like yeah roses all right but chrysanthemums sick <laughs> so I just wanted to do that book and just just draw chrysanthemums and draw them 
with other things, like with other things that I enjoy drawing. So whether it's like girl faces or like dragons and, you know, the tiger and, and they're all kind of playing together. And it wasn't itself, it was um, the, the part, painting it wasn't really hard because this was basically 10 sheets and they are like five on each side and they're like supposed to kind of like match up, right? So um, I just drew five different ones and make sure that the transitions were kind of like, you know, in a, in a good place. So I wouldn't have them problems at uh, kind of matching the pages. And then the, you know, I didn't think, I thought like, yeah, fine. I'm gonna find somebody to print it. And that was a big mistake. <laughs> It wasn't easy, like any single publisher or like person printer that I found here that I spoke to here in England, they were even telling me that, yeah, we can do it, but like 50 copies only because everything has to be by hand and it's going to be super expensive. So I was like, oh, bad, <laughs> bad thing. I just put in so much time in painting something that probably would never happen now. And then, thank God, through Yutaro and, uh, you know, his um, uh, friendship with Maza and all of the people over there at Free, um, free Tides, they managed, like, he asked and, um, and one of the people that work with them, that he kind of does all of those, you know, beautiful merch that you see Free Tides putting out. He takes care of all of that. And he knows all of the artisans around. So we asked him, it's like, hey, I want to do this thing. Do you know anybody? And it was like, oh, yeah, yeah, these people. And they were like normal printers over there. Like it wasn't anything specific. Um, They're like, yeah, I found it. They would do it for you. And I was like, oh, shit, no way. So I was stoked on that. We found that solution. And then it's been still challenging because they hand glued all the pages by hand it wasn't like any I don't remember how many pieces of paper a single book is but it's a lot and they perfectly matched like all as close as you can go all of the designs together uh, so that's been like you know that aspect and then they shipped over here and um and they were amazing. Like the, the embossing was perfect and I could choose I like the, the silk on the front. And um, so having the guys at Free Tides like basically made it, you know, just like make it become a real object. Otherwise they would have been like catching dust still there, like nothing ever happening because over here it would have been impossible. Um, so yeah, it was great. I was really happy with it. I was really, I, by the end, I hated fucking chrysanthemums. I'm like, I don't know how to draw <laughs> any of this shit anymore. I've done everything I could possibly. And that actually, that's the, um, the hard part again, right? It's like the, the first four or five pages came pretty easily because you know it's you have fresh ideas but then doing the other five it was a struggle it was like what colors do you do and how do you make them different because in the end I just wanted to do every page to have different flowers on it and not doing always the same shape of chrysanthemum so uh, finding way to 
having coming in from the top or from the bottom and just like small or big or thin petals, large petal closed or like, you know, wonky upside down or like from the back, like uh, that was quite, that, that was the tricky bit as well. <clears throat> and that's where your, uh, your ability to focus and, and be stubborn came in because you wouldn't yeah. give up on the project. <laughs> yeah, so that, Yutaro was so fun. Like every time Yutaro has to see, like he is so zen and like he would have storms going into his brain and he'll be totally still, like, you know, so in peace. And I'll be like just pulling my hair and just like shouting and swearing and kicking shit around and just throwing pieces of paper everywhere. So yeah, that's the Italian versus Japanese, I suppose. <laughs> that's the, the yeah, exactly. Decoboco, a hundred percent. Yeah. He wow. said like, oh, we are so decoboco. And it's so true. We are always the opposite of each other. So decoboco is the name of your guys. Uh, how, what would you call it? Your, your. It's like, it's our brand, I suppose. Yeah. yeah that's our online store where we sell our print and whatever we do um but it's how we used to call each other when we first started dating after Yutara said like I, we are so deco boko and I was like what does that mean and it's funny because deco as a kanji kind of looks like it's like a piece of tetris right and then it kind of looks like a penis and like uh, boko is like more like the shape of a vagina and then together they make like a square, which is then supposed to be a circle. Oh. So it's like unity. It can, they come together as one piece in the end. So, but then, but also, you know, when you put them together, it kind of makes the shape of a bumpy road, which is also me and Yutaro, <laughs> like in everything. Yeah, it's, it's quite, it's good. It's yeah, fun. and I mean, you guys are raising a kid, you work together and you live together. So yeah. <laughs> do you guys make a point to take time? You just your son is two or three? He's two, two and four months now. Yeah. So do you guys try to make a point to get some time alone? Do you get any time to yourself? Is that a possibility with a two two year two old? Two year old. Yeah, you can. I mean, we now that we're quite good. I mean, I make things organized and so Monday he'll be with Yutaro during the day and then Tuesday he's at nursery Wednesday I have him then Thursday and Friday he's at nursery and Saturday Sunday is family days which has been upgraded to two days a week because when we are actually working is one day a week <laughs> of family time um, so we try like to be honest um, it's not I do because of what we do, I think if you have a creative partner and there's a, you know, or that we're, like, if you do the same job, you know what the other person needs, right? Like, so we are quite respectful of the fact that if he's in the middle of a painting or the other way around, we kind of support each other in that, you know, there's no need like, oh, but it's your turn to do dinner. Like, there's <laughs> nothing like that, you know, it's kind of like, um we're quite understanding or or if you have to draw you know back piece or whatever the, the other person understand the pressure that you're under to 
do that. So um, in that sense, we work really well. And when it comes like to, you know, having time to ourselves, we still manage to have that. Like, you know, now things are different because of COVID. So we are a lot in the house, um, but we still try to have that me time. So I now have a... um, an art studio, uh, just picked it up because I want to try to paint with oils and I can't do it in the house. Mm. So we're not going to be spending as much time together. But he said, do you want to come and paint with me? And kind mm-hmm. of, you know, because for us, we're so used to be around each other. So being apart, I, I kind of felt bad actually for taking the studio, but he was like, no man, just go take, you know, do your thing. It's not a problem at all. Um, so... I don't know. Yutaro is a very easygoing person, um, and I'm not. So um, it kind of it works really well for me <laughs> that he is so easygoing. Yeah. So you're a pretty structured person. You like to operate on a schedule. I have uh, control issues. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's not. I'm not structured. I just have control issues. <laughs> Just can't. I just need to be in control of everything at all times, which is a, like if it's my right now. Well, first with the shop, and then you know, in the relationship, and then having a child even more. Of us being like, you know, I've been not fighting with this thing, but in a sense, it kind of paid off because then if you're a control freak, then you make sure that everything is done to like to what you want it to be right so in a sense can be good but then when you can't control other people you can't control events around you you can't control anything else so that's that's my biggest struggle especially now with my son I kind of like I just switched and became a different person in the sense that if somebody looks at him in a way that I don't like it I could kill that person like it's just there's no uh, I became super protective and even more like a need to have control because he has to be safe at all time. So um, it's a, it's a, it's a problem. <laughs> it's a real <laughs> fucking problem. It's not good to be in my head uh, at the moment. Yeah. That's a big struggle. So I, I talked a little bit about this with Yutaro. I think uh, being stuck in the head, I think as creatives, we are so naturally stuck in our heads. We spend so much of our time there and it can get to be a little oppressive at times. Like we could drive ourselves crazy. You know, that's like the stereotype of an artist. And I've found for myself over the years that I've kind of discovered the importance of recognizing the different parts of ourselves. So mind, body, and spirit. So Mm. I have to I have to feed my mind good things. I have to, you know, try to read some good philosophy or, you know, just different food for the brain and then use the body through exercise or yoga or uh, running, anything to get into your body and then spirit some way to exercise our spirit through acts of service or through prayer or meditation or anything. Do you have ways that you use to get yourself out of your head when you're getting like super stuck in there? so I used to do yoga but now I hate it so I don't do that anymore <laughs> um, what made you hate I, it? 
yoga people. The people. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. It's just kind of like, I don't know. Again, it's really strange because um, I started practicing yoga 10 years ago and for seven years I was fuck, like that into it. Like I'll do it traveling. I do it everywhere. Um, you know, I'll go multiple times a week to a yoga studio and I still, you know, if I think back, I loved it and I love how it made me feel. But then, you know, I could kind of coexist with a lot of those fake gurus and fake spiritual people. And and then I just couldn't handle it anymore. I just couldn't be around these fucking pseudo enlightened people you know they are like the most resentful people that I ever met they were into fucking yoga or zen or any of that so I don't know I just have quite a lot of um, and then I got pregnant and because I was already hyper mobile I just couldn't do yoga because it actually was worse for me so yeah it was just I was way too limber and it just didn't work so I I was already doing kind of like spinning classes you know just like going mental on a bike on a stationary bike and I just kept doing that until I was seven months pregnant and then um, I was going to the swimming pool instead because it was getting too much for me but now I have a bike so I just get like a good sweaty class and that make me feel good Um, I go for long walks I like walking. We have um, around my house, there's like this beautiful nature walk that goes all the way up to Highgate, which is my favorite part in London, and Hampstead Heath, um, which is beautiful parks. So I just get in the green and I just walk, 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 walk. Um, um, yeah, I go and take photos of houses, of Victorian houses. Oh, I'm just cool. making a little... Yeah, just folder of like places I wish I could live in, but I would never afford to. So (laughs) um, I just like, yeah, I just like going and um, just see old buildings, stuff like that. Um, Yeah, that's what gets me out of my mind. The spiritual side, um, it's very, um, I don't know where is this blockage coming from. Um, Again, I think it's because... I have to be in control all the time since my uh, son was born. And I just, the spiritual side to me right now feels like it's too up there and too intangible for me. So therefore it's not useful to keep him safe. You know what I mean? Mm. It's kind of like, I think that's where my issues are at the moment, but um, so I don't, I sort of do some guided meditation at night, just mostly because uh, I need to shut my head from thinking. Because uh, I, I, before I'm, I start using, it's kind of like this app and they're like, they have 20, 25 minutes of like full body relaxation. Mm-hmm. So we just do talking and just listen to that. And I kind of like fall asleep with it. But um, before that, I would just have, like I could stay in bed two hours thinking of horrible things that could go wrong. So mm. I, I was having very little sleep and um, yeah, it was, it was not a good place to be in. So, but that spiritual mm. side, I think I had a little bit of those experiences, like 
kind of feeling in touch with that and this is gonna sound crazy because i'm super anti-catholic like me too mad yeah just totally against it right and everything they represent but i start having um i you know since i've been here i haven't really got in any church there's not like i don't go to church i never went um when i was in italy but you go to visit churches because they're beautiful places in Italy. So you'd always visit, you know, some church because there's something sick inside, um, but not so much in England. So last year, not the year before, two years ago, we were going to Florence with Utaro. And as we start going to see churches again, because I wanted to see what was inside, right? And I started having really strange spiritual, um, kind of flames coming back up in a place that I hate. I was like, I hate this place. Why am I feeling like this? I don't want to feel like I'm coming home. I don't want to feel like that with Jesus. <laughs> so, um, but it's just like, I think I was having that uh, sense of, like, I just felt like probably somebody in the Middle Ages, you know, they were going to a church after working, working in a field and like, just having that sense of the elevation and, like being in a place that the place gives you that sense of like, mm -hmm. um, just arising, you know, just like um, experiencing something different. Um, something greater than ourselves. I mean, those buildings yeah. are. Yeah, it's even that with DMT. Like, oh, I mean, yeah. Kind of <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, and then I was just thinking, I mean, in a way that I, I can't even come close to understanding, there must be some. I mean, really, if our if our spirit is just this thing that connects us to the to where we come from, whatever it is, who the fuck knows this vortex or fucking stardust thing, mm -hmm. then bringing a life into the world and having that connection to your son and the fact that you brought him here, that in itself must be a pretty uh, spiritual kind of experience, I would think, even just to spend time with him and look look at this thing that wasn't there that is now there because yeah. Of you and Yataro. Yeah, he's um um I uh, he is like my he kind of grounds me and because I have to be present because he's full on and also gives me so it gets me out of my mind um because yeah otherwise he die or choke or something like so I have to you know think of what he's doing. But also those moments that, because I'm still breastfeeding him, and those moments that we have of intimacy, or even when he wants to hug me and stuff like that, they're just like bliss, you know? It's it's just every single time, is there's no, it just fills your heart in a way uh, that, yeah, I just only had through doing psychedelics, so. Are you, um, are you a fan of psychedelics? I am very much a fan of it. Um, I haven't done a crazy amount. I was like straight edge when I was growing up, um, which I think it was good because at 16, nobody should get fucked up too much, mm -hmm. I don't think. Um, so, and I think I, I, I wasn't even in a place to handle anything like that, you know? I was very scared of drugs growing up, but just of that sense of losing control. Um, and then I met Yutaro and, uh, 
um, he kind of introduced me to it. Like I was already curious, but I didn't know anybody that was into it over here. Um, and through Utaro, we I experienced some. And um, one of them was definitely life-changing experience. Um, it was just beautiful and it gave me a sense of uh, peace and um, of belonging for some time. Uh, but it's so fucking scary. <laughs> like every time you get into it, that it's not about, something that you feel. Is it DMT? I'm talking about, uh, yeah, it was a uh, buffo we did. Oh, okay. uh, so it's five, five crypto something. I don't know. It's the highest form the, of DMT. The, the frog? Yeah. 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 So, um, yeah, that it was a incredible experience. Um, in uh, you know, we did it in Norway inside of um, ancient circle, stone circle. Um, that actually I felt like it was very protective of the experience that I was having. Um, and it was insane, and I didn't even know how much was gonna come out of it, and and. But I think for me, the experience itself was insane. And you kind of want to do it again right after, like after you've done it, because you have these crazy feelings of belonging and, you know, just being one with everything that you don't get in normal life generally. Mm -hmm. um, so I felt like, oh my God, this is it. Like, I just want to come back and do it like six months to do it again. And no, like no that doesn't happen like because it just brings up so much shit um that you have to deal with afterwards um and uh, and it took me quite a lot of time i think i'm still working on it so i don't i think it's amazing and i think um I definitely want to use it again because I have a super, I'm super fearful of dying and just kind of like leaving things not taken care of. Um, so having that experience really uh, helped me with that because I felt like that even when that comes, everything is going to be okay. Um, so that I think that's the, the best that I got out of the experience. Um, but there's, it always kind of feels like you're trying to catch up with what you, you experienced, at least in my personal, um, yeah, experience. Like I just feel like there's all of these things. And literally, I when I was lying there, I had this beautiful moment when I felt one with everything, and I remember. And then I start laughing because I could hear, like, hear, like, laugh back, like, this echo, like, you know, that was going around on my own laughter. And then it was the sounds, um, it was, like, all white and beautiful. And then it was, like, the breeze of the wind. And, like, I could hear bees flying. Like, it was very crazy. And then, and then all of a sudden, like, from laughing, my own laugh turned into desperate, desperate crying and shouting. And then I was like, I asked you, I was like, oh my God, so I, I was screaming, right? He was like, no, you were so quiet. But inside me, it was like mm -hmm. the loudest scream I ever had. 
And then it was like all of these like memories pulling, like I was just pulling them out physically from me. And like every single member was like, oh, did this really fuck me up? I didn't, I didn't even know, you know? So it was, um, and I'm still, every single thing is like, although I pull it out and I kind of show it to myself, you know, just like this shit really fucked you up. This shit also fucked you up and I kind of let it go. I'm still dealing with it. Mm-hmm. It's still there. Like, you know, so before doing it again, I, I'm just can't go willing in into it. Like, oh yes. I'm gonna go yeah, and just get you know what I mean like it's not necessarily for a good time it's for no yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. good time if you're lucky for a tiny tiny <laughs> little bit and then it's not it's like it's a huge mural that is being like just, in front of you I was just thinking you were making that motion of pulling it out and uh my girlfriend just said something the other day about strings and maybe like you're pulling it out but there's still a string that connects it to yeah. you and you're, you yeah. know, gradually learn to let that go or that deteriorates maybe yeah. i know that we were both in uh, nepal during the earthquake oh my god yeah that's when we met <laughs> yeah briefly like it, i think yeah for like oh you're still alive all right cool <laughs> right. i yeah. think we met the day before it happened and then it happened on the first day of the convention and i was yeah. i was uh yeah i had crazy diarrhea that day so i was i went home early oh <laughs> um, uh, yeah well I yeah. had it too. Oh, did yeah. you? Really? <laughs> yeah. Look like, how much we have in common. <laughs> oh my God. Just like, I think half an hour before the earthquake hit, I was like literally in the bathroom of the hotel, like just holding on to the walls. I was like, oh my God, what is happening to me? <laughs> it was just so bad. <laughs> I've never experienced anything like that. It was insane. It was like, any kids coming? <laughs> it was just not stopping. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, uh, yeah, that was so you you were not at the convention when it happened. No, I, I tattooed that first day and I was shooting my brains out all day. And while I was there, I was talking to a woman and she I told her that I was feeling sick to my stomach. And she's like, Did you brush your teeth with the water? And I was like, Yeah, I did, but I'd been to Nepal like a couple of years ago and I did and I was fine. She's like, no, you don't brush your teeth with the water. That's that's not what you do. And then somehow she said, you know, there's a big earthquake that's going to come here at some point, because if you look at the Himalayas, that's from continents colliding. And she just brought it up. She was like a reporter and she was interviewing people. And then the next fucking morning, that 7.8 earthquake hit and I was in bed with diarrhea and I thought, oh my God, what's happening in my stomach right now for a second. And then I realized this fucking building is going to collapse on me. Yeah. And, uh, yeah what a what a terrifying experience yeah he was really he was insane and i just didn't even like i felt like um like a deer you know like because i'm from italy so i'm used to earthquakes i've been in earthquakes before um and i've never been scared of it like i was never you know, like my mom and my dad would be like, get out of the table. And I would be like floating, like, you know, pretending to be surfing, like, cause I like, know this is all right. Like everything is be okay. You know, like I would just not really care as much. I didn't know why, but when that, the one in Nepal hit, like as soon as it started, like the lights went off and the chandeliers about my head start going like, like that, just like moving. And I stood up and I started running. Like, 
and it wasn't even conscious that like it was outside of my body I was running and I didn't even know where I was going I was still holding like a bottle of Dettol because I was putting like this the stencil onto my customer and I just stood up with the bottle and I started running and you tell her saw me running like where the fuck is she going well I better run too <laughs> so she starts following me <laughs> but you know it's just like and I, and then I stopped I was like I gotta you know go back to your tarot like so and then people start like coming against me because everybody was running at that stage and then he caught me like he like wrapped on to me and we ran out together um but he, it was just um so surreal and uh, I don't know like it was I never felt so it was it's just there's nothing like that like every single time like because then when that happened then we stayed outside in the garden for like two three hours waiting for it you know to be safe to be walking and when you're in Nepal like I was showing some pictures to my friends of Nepal and they were like ah this is when the earthquake hit I was like no no this is before everything is fucked before like <laughs> nothing you know it's just like you look and there's like like bamboo sticks like everywhere holding up like this half empty and half collapsing buildings as it is so it's not like you don't feel like I remember walking in on the street and just seeing this like oh, man. building like tilting and you're like is this gonna crumble like and just hit me like it was um so uh, yeah, just walking on on the minefield, really, just didn't know how to get around, and um, and just the the f- crazy power of just the earth exploding under your feet is insane. It's just yeah. like you just never feel anything like that. Yeah, and it, then it's the, so it much. It just kept coming. Like the aftershocks were fucking. It insane. was constant. Yeah. yeah. We were just waiting and everybody was in shock and the just earth kept like exploding. It was just like, boom, yeah. right? It was just like this, it made you jump. There's nowhere to go because you're yeah. sitting on the thing that is going to shit. Like, and then you're so in this you, country that has no, I mean, the buildings are old as fuck and there's no yeah. rebar holding anything up. So everything is just collapsing around us or potentially on top of, of everyone. Yeah. And, I mean, it killed 10,000 people. Yeah, and you feel like the smallest thing ever. Like, you just feel how much you're made of mush, basically. You know, so it was, yeah, it was just the constant. And, you know, I remember we went back to the Airbnb that actually it was this brand new building that the guy, like, owned, that owned, had built for in case of a big one hitting, right? So it was all uh, anti-seismic and, you know, earthquake proof and it was amazing. But I was so scared. I just slept outside basically for three days. Well, I slept, I didn't sleep. Um, And, uh, you know, there was like a radio going. I remember just like hearing this language that you don't pick up anything. Like you can't understand nothing on what's going on. And I don't know if you remember that they were talking about uh, this like you know that the earthquake created like a hole in the atmosphere so we're open to radiation so we had to hide all the phones away do you remember this no you didn't have that so this is like what was being said 
like and then we were with this family right like, so there was like they were telling us what the news were saying and they were talking about this you know radiation thing so we had to uh, move all the phones away from us because they could have caught fire or something like crazy and then there was talking of having even a bigger one coming like through you know the, the news so and we didn't have the phone didn't pick up the internet we didn't have the internet like it was super hard to get in touch with anybody or try to buy tickets to on the way out so it was pretty like i was in pity i, I had full-on ptsd for like six months and uh, every time there was a bus you know I still going by you still get it i still get that like if a dump truck goes by i i have that reaction just for yeah. a split second and yeah, yeah. it's wild and yeah. did you get to explore uh Kathmandu at all before no because oh. we got there so i think the the earthquake was on saturday morning and i think we got there on thursday oh man it and is because the idea was like to see it after and from there we were going to go to bhutan mm -hmm. and that didn't happen um so yeah which i just saw very very little very little i think it's one of the most amazing places i've ever been it is it's so magical and i can't wait to go back i wonder if i'll be really freaked out or have like flashbacks but the people and the symbology and the god it's such an incredible place yeah i mean the people were definitely because we were staying with this nepalese family and um they were they were amazing and the people in the neighborhood everybody was looking after each other um i heard the stories of people that were staying in uh embassies because they went back to their own embassies so full of this and also this is probably what kind of helped my divorce with spirituality like this you know fucking wannabe hippies they were stealing food and water from kids you know like they, in these embassies they were just like behaving like the lowest scumbags ever knowing that they were going to go back to their own country within two days while people here you know it, I, I got yeah. so mad at all of that stuff and actually being at that convention you know where all these people were walking without shoes on and i was like oh god like <laughs> Get a grip, you know what I mean? I just kind of got a little bit. And then I remember this Nepalese family, they were saying like, yeah, this is the gods that left Nepal because spirituality has become tourism. Mm. That's what they said about the earthquake. That's how they explained the earthquake. I was like, yep, yeah, I can see that. And probably I'm one of them, maybe a little bit, you know, but like, so that really kind of, sober me up in the sense of <clears throat> um making a culture that is not yours yours you know what i mean yeah. in a sense so uh, i'm not yeah i think you know maybe that made me understand that the answer is not in something else but is in within me and there's no pre made road to of spirituality that's gonna leave me there 
ultimately. That's how oh. I feel. Yeah, totally. That I had, you know? uh, I think Nepal actually opened me up to the idea of spirituality again, because I, I, I was a preacher when I was a kid. I became a born again Christian, and oh, really? I just lost like my twenties to Christianity. Oh and, wow! Yeah, so I had so much hatred. I I fucking hated it. And I actually, when I started tattooing, I, I did it with the idea that I could tell people about Jesus because I was like into pr Christian punk rock and hardcore. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, but I really, I, I hated it. I hated any idea of religion so much. And then I, after two years of traveling, I ended up in Nepal and I spent some time there and I just had this feeling like, holy shit. Like, look at how imaginative this religion is. They have like a million gods. And I started thinking, man, it's all just active imagination. It's just, you know, yeah. it's just people coming up with whatever idea they could, wherever they were, wherever they are now, of trying to figure some something out to, to connect us to, to the thing that's bigger than ourselves. And to have the idea that we could give it any specific name or any you know, to believe that any of it is absolutely true is, I think, asinine. But it opened me up to the idea that, huh, the imagination part, that could be kind of fun, you know? Yeah. And that, it was nice to let go of that. And I, I attribute that to Nepal and the amazing symbology and everything there. Mm. But I, I see your point, uh, maybe about the bastardization of their culture for, for tourism and for even for artistic endeavors for people like myself yeah. who really like the imagery <laughs> yeah me too you know it's kind of like and I think everything that has happened with you know the first lockdown that came to like you know that everybody I don't want to get political too much but where people were called racist for anything really in my eyes um but mostly you know that, that there is a point of like using traditional tattooing of you know small tribes um in a way that is not healthy and i agree with that like i don't i wouldn't call it racist that person that does it like because to me, racism is something else, but I would say that it's pretty disrespectful. Uh, you know, like doing certain tattooing without even getting tattoos done by the original tribe. You know, it's like for me, there's a difference between appreciation and love and research and um, devotion and dedication to something like for me, like Japanese might be, you know, or I see a lot of people that does like beautiful tribal um, uh, tattoos, but I know that they went to Borneo when we probably were not, there were not even planes flying there, you know, and they met in those cultures and they stay there. And, and I think that a lot of people that are outside tattooing, it's very hard to understand this, but I never had, when every single time since I went from the first time in Japan and I was like three years into my tattooing. So I, my knowledge of tattooing was fucking nothing, right? And I was nobody and I was shit at it. But I went to see Oriyoshi third and he had me sitting in there and treat me like I was the fucking best thing ever. 
because there's that between the two artists, it doesn't matter where you're from, you have one thing in common that most of the society around you fucking hate. So you speak the same language, you share the same love, you share the same passion. And that's what gets the tours from all around the world to have something in common. And I think from outsider, this is really hard to understand. So, but I understand also that if you don't go to meet these people that are so inspiring to you, right? Like, and share their lifestyle, like or what tattooing is for them, then you're not doing it right. You're not doing it responsibly. You're not doing it, feeling it 100%, you know? And I think nowadays it's very easy to see people, you know, that something looks cool because it's new, right? Like on Instagram. So you have this beautiful Berber tattooing, you know, like that nobody knows anything about. So you start doing and getting all the likes, but yet you've never been there. You never met anyone that was doing it. You never got any of those tattoos done by them. So that's not cool. You know, yeah. it's kind of like there's a fine line, but I think there's there are questions that people need to kind of, when you're doing, when you're borrowing something from somewhere else, you need to ask yourself why you're doing it. And if you're doing it with respect or not, I think that's where, um, I don't think that because you're white, you should be doing just, you know, European or American tattoos. You can explore, you can go and, you know, be attracted by these beautiful uh, imagery that, that is not part of your culture, but is it going to be just, uh, you know, I take this, so I pay my bills with it, or like you're going to be studying it and just go there and see it for yourself. That's where, you uh, know, got, that's how I see. I got chills. That was really, really well said. I, uh, it's almost like just taking a, it's, it's like screenshots, you know, it's just like, take a screenshot, I'll use that. And without any understanding yeah. or appreciation or, uh, yeah, that's yeah. A really beautiful idea. So, what connects us as tattooers to yeah you know it's just kind of and i don't think that when i see people talking about i just don't want to get too into it but just saying like ah oh, you know you can't be using the chinese dragon or you know japanese dragon because you're not from this and that and like i'm like hang on a minute and i go on your page and you like you're just doing something that has nothing to do with what i'm doing as a tattooer and you're judging me without knowing, like if the Japanese fucking masters welcome me with their open arms, accept my gifts, they give me gifts back to a white person that all it does is loving their art. Like who the fuck are you that you've been tattooing five years to tell me that what I'm doing is wrong? Yeah. Generally, that's how I feel. You know, if like, I don't know, I know that to, or Yoshi's eyes, I'm, or, you know, or Itoshi or, or Imomo, like, I'm not, like, what I do as tattooing is nothing, like, I know, like, but, but they see my respect and love for it, and I think they're giving me the respect back for that reason, yeah. otherwise, they'll be like, hey, girl, bye-bye, they don't have problems, they deal with fucking Yakuza, you think they have problems and tell me to fuck off, they don't, so, you know, I don't know, it's, um, that's very, it's a very sacred bond between tattooers, I think. Yeah. And especially with older generation, you know, that they haven't experienced, 
they are not big on the Instagram or whatever, you know, but they are the kings of, of their neighborhood and they had a tradition and they have students and they have, they created a style that's going to last for decades past their lifetime. So, you know, it's kind of like, I don't know. I, I understand. I always said like, well, if you do, if you do a Japanese tattooing, you never go to Japan. Like what the fuck are you doing? Like, it's kind of, you know, it's a bit fucked up in my yeah. eyes. Um, no, I, I don't think, know. Maybe I'm judgmental. <clears throat> no, I, I think there's been a huge shift in, I think especially during COVID, but I think since since social media, some something has changed in terms of like identity and people mm -hmm. identifying with ideas and not being able to see that people that it's not so black and white. It's all because it, yeah. it seems like everything has become so black and white and people don't contain differences in their own opinions on things and people don't contain multitudes like we nothing is black and white with anybody but we say well I think this and you think this so we're enemies or you're doing this wrong yeah. because I don't when man there's so much depth to, to everything and everyone but some yeah. of those ideas I think are existing on like the the surface of the water where everything is moving so rapidly and I think what you're mm -hmm. talking about is as we go deeper in the water gets really still and we start to dive into the history and being part of this great expanse rather than that thing that's moving really quick which is I think a lot of our current dialogue on uh, identity and and yeah we're just I don't know. it's like it's all of those questions that, that have been raised you know there are questions worth asking but we have to have the ears to listen to the answers and and consider a conversation, you know? And there's no conversation, like there's just like cutting out. Yeah, there's definitely you know? no conversation and saying, you fucking suck because you said this when, you know, and I, yeah, the conversation is essential. It's, um, I hope it's a phase. You know, but it's just like, I hope it's just a, a moment in history that everybody was stuck in a house. I, I, I want to blame it on COVID. I want to blame everybody had multiple issues to deal with, you know, from economical to psychological to, you know, physical, anything. And I want to hope that that's why this came the way that it did like um but i hope we can do better than that i hope that that doesn't become the way that people talk with each other i did i hope this is not it because it's very um it's very heartbreaking it makes everybody it i think the human person feels generally alone in the world for most of their lives because we are alone right but there's a a need to connect with others that is within our nature and that's what makes us grow through pain through joy through everything if we don't allow that exchange to even happen what the fuck we're doing here where are we going we are self-destructing like we cannot function 
like that as a single person or as a society. So I hope 2020, you know, was there and 2021 people are start getting a little bit like, oh shit, I got a little bit extreme there. <laughs> Should have got there, you know? Yeah. Just being a little bit more like, ah, you know, there, there's more to it. And also I think is that thing of everybody looks so fucking happy always on Instagram. You know, there's like this filtered life, but it's not real. And everybody is there all day long, just scrolling and just seeing everybody doing better than them. That they think like, well, that person is untouchable. I can say whatever I want to that person because that's not going to change their lifestyle. That's not going to impact them because they have 200,000 followers. No, they're still a person with mental issues, possibly, you know, that will get hurt from what you're saying. And people are losing touch with that. It's not okay to say shitty things all the time. That's what I think. That's beautiful. Rent over. <laughs> I hope you're right. I really hope you're right. I hope so. It must be, you know, like when we're writing a, a fuck it, when we're writing a message on a YouTube video or writing a, a message on Instagram, it's so definitive. It's just that one line or whatever we say, and we press send, and it, there's no there's no context. There's no ability to hear a person's voice. So I think. Hopefully, as we get back to being more social and being able to talk to one another and see people, our lives will become a little less consumed by that definitive, those definitive lines that we've drawn. Yeah, I hope so too. Okay, uh, what's something that you wish that someone, that, something that you wish that you learned when you were younger, that someone had taught you when you were younger? Hmm. Hmm. Uh, well I think I got given a lot of good advice I wasn't just able to listen to them so <laughs> I think any good advice would have been totally wasted on me <laughs> um, yeah I don't I don't know I think I wish maybe my parents um, told me to be more you know to to uh, do more sports and stuff like that um because that like it's big struggle for me and my relationship with my body and stuff uh it's very much yeah it's just uh it was not part of my education um so that's the only thing and you know for everything else my parents were quite i mean super hard work so i did get it from them like i, I learned from them and um, I don't know. Yeah, maybe I wish somebody told me, hey, if you don't belong, it's totally fine. You know, just find your own way. But nobody ever told me that. So kind of, I think for a, a long time, I always try to belong to somebody, to some, something. Whether it's like the tattoo industry or the graffiti scene or fucking music or whatever, just trying to find it. But every time I get into something, I'm like, it doesn't feel right. You know, like even tattooing doesn't feel 100% right, but because 
no, there's no real belonging. There's no real being part of something to me, at least. Yeah. yeah. All right. And last question. How, yes. how would you define success? Hmm. Ah, oh, yeah, yeah. Success. Um, it's a balance between what you think you can achieve and freedom and social approval, maybe. It's a, it's a combination of these three things. And I think everybody, I don't think that it can ever be any of them separately. I don't think if you are happy, then you're successful or because you might be just arrogant and you know, not able to listen to other criticism, or but if you base it all on what other people say, then you may be underachieving what you can do. And freedom, mm, you just need it to be creative and to live life. You can't be a slave of your own success because otherwise it's not success, it's just slavery to something, I think. Brilliant. Improvising here. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I can think of in this, uh, you know. You did so seconds. good. Thank you so much for being so open and brave and uh, honest. I, I hope so. I hope I don't get canceled. <laughs> <laughs> Is that still a thing? Is still a trend? Can, I'm can sure it's still people? a thing. Possibly still a thing. Yeah, I, I'm oh, constantly, yeah. I've, I've been getting worried about it as I, as I do it, but I know, you know, like I know that I have the best intentions and I only want to, uh, I'm, th this is a way that I want to contribute the greater good. And I'm not saying anything, I, I don't, I don't think divisively, so I don't intend to devise anybody or, or split people up or I just want to have open human experiences. And if somebody yeah. takes offense to that, then that's not my problem. Um, and I'm, yeah. it's the same with you. You were just honest and you didn't say anything. But in hindsight, uh, if you if there's anything that you'd like to take out, we can, I can edit it. No, fuck it. <laughs> I think you did so good. It was such a pleasure to talk to you. I'm glad. It was really nice talking to you too. It was really interesting conversations for sure. Yeah. I don't know. I hope that people... Because we took you know quite a few tangents, but uh, I think the two questions straight up like there's people that time. do that already. I, that's not my and intention I answer at all. them like you can find it anywhere. You know what I mean? Like yeah, yeah. I think there's a lot more behind that. You know what I mean? It's like um, I think what you need to, in order to become good at what you do is just explore more than what you do you know it just you need to gather more energy and influence from other things otherwise your work is just sterile because it ultimately will become a copy of somebody else's work so so 
So yeah, there's more, there needs to be more than what we do. Totally. Yeah. Well, so. grazie mille. You're welcome. <laughs> I can't even say it like you thought it was that. Um, what do you say? Just me the trago. I am the river and I'm flowing to the sea. Traveling life, I am traveling free. The music playing is from my friend Dave Perry down in Costa Rica. You can find his music on Bandcamp. And this song is called Cosmic Pilgrim. Floating on the breeze like clouds in the sky. In the galactic wanderer, in wonder of the world. When becomes a wave and a name from the sun.